I do not believe the country will be pushed into default fault. I think Congress knows what it has to do. It, it's got time to do it. The president's made clear what he's prepared to do. And the parties are going to have to come together. It's kind of unfortunate that things always have to get to the last minute. It's empty in the valley of your heart. The sonnet rises slowly as you walk away from all the fears and all the faults you've left behind. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Robert Smith. And I'm David Kestenbaum. It's Tuesday, July 19th, and that was White House Budget Director Jack Lew on ABC's This Week talking about raising the debt ceiling. Today on the podcast, how much debt is too much debt? With all the politicking in Washington over the debt ceiling and new fears about how much debt Italy has, not to mention Greece, we asked the question, is there a magic amount of debt where beyond that level you get into trouble? But first, the Planet Money Indicator, a special guest Planet Money Indicator from Zoe Chase. Hello. Hey. Uh, today's Planet Money Indicator is zero. You come in on a guest indicator and you give us zero? Yeah, there's no indicator. It's like there is. Zero is how many pork belly futures contracts were traded on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange today. And the number was also zero yesterday and Friday because the mark... <laughs> Once the global hub of pork belly action ended trading in pork belly futures last Friday. Oh, no. I mean, this is when I make jokes about the Merck. I always joke about pork bellies. See, that's funny. I don't think about the Merck, but maybe I should because in Chicago, they bet on the future price of commodities. And the best way to explain commodities is like, remember in Trading Places in that's 1983? The movie with Eddie Murphy, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, Eddie Murphy walks into the room, and there's these two old guys, and they sit him down in front of what looks like just a plate of, of breakfast. And he's like, I don't want breakfast. And the old guy is like, no, no, no. These are commodities. I'm going to play it for you. Now, what are commodities? Commodities are agricultural products, like coffee that you had for breakfast, wheat, which is used to make bread, pork bellies, which is used to make bacon, which you might find in a bacon and lettuce and tomato sandwich. <laughs> because right at that moment, Eddie Murphy turns to the camera and is like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is that the bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich used to power the entire Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Forty years ago, a BLT was seasonal. When tomatoes would come in season late summer, demand for bacon would jump. And the way the meat industry used to work in Chicago was that slabs of pork belly would be kept in frozen warehouses in Chicago. Pork belly traders would buy up shares of frozen bellies when they were cheap and sell them off when bacon producers needed them. But this doesn't make any sense. I mean, everyone loves bacon. There's bacon True. everywhere. We're in a bacon renaissance. There should be more <laughs> bacon, more pork belly futures out there. Right. Well... There's a few reasons why the, the trading ended. Let me explain. First of all, the meat industry changed in the 80s, and the bacon producers weren't using frozen bellies anymore. As soon as the hog was cut, slaughtered, they would cut the bacon off the belly and sell it right then. So the, the frozen thing wasn't really acceptable. Also, bacon is no longer a seasonal product. As you said, people want bacon all the time now. It doesn't vary. They want it constantly every month of every year. And the other thing that happened was on the exchange, financial products changed. They grew more complex, and people wanted to bet on interest rate futures and currency futures, and, and pork bellies just weren't as hot. You know, sad day for pork bellies, great day for bacon, always. Every Thank, day. Thanks, Zoe. Thank you.
Okay, on to debt and how much is too much. Today is going to be kind of a deep read with Ken Rogoff, economist at Harvard. We've had him on the podcast before. He used to be chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. He is also co-author with Carmen Reinhart of the book, This Time is Different, Eight Centuries of Financial Folly. And you know, Dave, I read this on the beach this weekend. I pulled it up on my Kindle, and it is actually a fascinating book. Rogoff and Reinhardt look back at hundreds of years worth of financial crises, and they pull all this data about debt and interest rates. And it actually made me feel a little bit better about the state of the world, because we in the 21st century are not special. For hundreds of years, countries have screwed up, they've taken on too much debt, and then they've crashed. And Rogoff knows exactly how much debt did them in. Debt levels around the world right now are are pretty high, and there are worries about places like Greece defaulting, maybe throwing Europe into another financial crisis, maybe throwing the world back into recession. And there are worries here at home, certainly with the U.S. debt. And debt can be really scary. The situation can go from okay one minute to super screwed up really, really quickly, as anyone in debt can attest. I mean, a country can be perfectly fine with a low level of debt or with low interest rates, and all of a sudden, markets get nervous about lending the country money, and they start to demand more money from that country, higher interest rates. And you have to pay more at the very moment when your country does not have enough money. That's when you know you're in real trouble. So our question today is, when exactly do you get into that trouble? Is there some sort of threshold? First, though, we have to define one term. It is the gauge economists use to measure debt. Usually, it's the debt-to-GDP ratio. And debt's the easy part of the equation. Uh, It's how much the government owes to banks, to other countries, to its very own people who buy treasury bills, say. GDP is the gross domestic product, basically everything a country makes. You think of it like a national income. So debt to GDP ratio, it's like saying how much you owe relative to how much you earn. You can think of a family. Debt to GDP for a family would be everything you owe, including your mortgage, your credit cards, divided by your annual income. And that's actually a pretty big number for most families, especially if you have a mortgage. For a home, you might have, say... uh, a household where you have annual income of $100,000 and a mortgage of, say you had a mortgage of $200,000, you would have a debt to GDP just from that of, of 200%. That, that's exactly right. So many households have uh, debt to GDP, debt to income ratios way above 100%. That's very typical in the United States. And, and there are some people with probably three and 400%. So why are we so upset with countries that are up at 100% of debt to GDP? Well, 100% of debt-to-GDP by historical norms is just a high number that not many countries have gotten up there for very long. It is a little hard to say exactly why it's a problem because in principle, if everyone trusts us and our tax system works smoothly and seamlessly, we, the country, like households, could conceivably handle something larger. But historical experience suggests that countries run into trouble at some point when you start getting above 100%. This still doesn't make sense to me. It would seem that a government would be more trustworthy in a way than, than I don't know, than David Kestenbaum. If I'm going to loan him 200 300% of his income, why wouldn't I trust a government, which at least you know where it's located, you know where the capital is? The big difference is that when the government's borrowing, it's essentially unsecured credit. You have the full faith of the government behind it, but there's nothing you can really grab very easily. Most Americans who have 
very high debts or over their annual income, a big part of it's their mortgage. That's not credit card debt, but really something like a mortgage, perhaps their car, something that creditors can take if they don't pay. Whereas if the government tells you to take a walk, there's not that much you can do. When your country's in debt, you really only have bad options. And we'll go through them. Option one, cross your fingers. And, and you hope your country grows fast enough that you can literally outrace your debt, that you'll have enough money to pay it all off. And this is the hope that every country clings to. And Rogoff makes it clear through all the data, this does not usually work out. Rogoff says that high debts actually make a country grow slower. Option two, option two, you, the government, slash your spending. Instead of spending money on your people, you focus on paying off your debt. That seems responsible, but Rogoff says it can get quite painful. Reinhardt and I give the example of Romania in the 1980s where Sasescu, the dictator, just went nuts and decided they should just pay down their gigantic debt and people didn't have heat, you know, they didn't uh, even fund electricity in factories. It was just miserable. But by gosh, they paid down their debt. And uh, everyone, I think, regards that as a one of the many very crazy and destructive things he did. And six months, six months after he paid off the debt, that dictator was overthrown and executed by his own people. Perhaps he should have considered option three. This is actually the most common thing that countries with high debts do. They end up defaulting. One way or another, they stop paying their loans. But that can set up a whole chain reaction. It can drag down every bank and every country that trusted you, that lent you money in the first place. And this is the real problem with high debt loads. You have three bad options. So we asked Rogoff, what is the point of no return? How close are the economies of the world to being too much in debt? Rogoff says, looking back at 44 countries over 200 years, which he and Carmen Reinhardt have done, there is a kind of threshold. Countries, he says, get in trouble when their debts exceed 90% of their GDP. What we find is that there's a correlation, and I want to emphasize only correlation, uh, when you start having debt far above 90 above 90% of GDP, there's a, a threshold. It's pretty rare to start getting above that. And you have to ask yourself, why? At some point, there's a ceiling where markets start to bite back, interest rates start to rise that you're paying on the debt. But Where the, where the markets yeah. get nervous. The markets say, oh, 90, 100%, that's making me nervous. And they start to charge you more interest to loan you money. And then it spins out of control quickly because when they start charging you more interest and you owe a lot of money, you can't afford that either. So just to bring this back to our analogy of the family, this is as if you had a bunch of credit cards. And if you had more and more credit cards, all of a sudden your credit card company says, you know what, that 13% interest rate, we're going to bump it up to 23 because we're afraid of the level of debt you've gotten, right? That's exactly right. Robert, we decided we would take a tour of countries that are in debt right now and see whether they're over that 90% line and what that means. We're going to look at one country in terrible shape, one country that's maybe okay, and the big question mark, the United States. Let's start with terrible. Greece. Greece's debt to GDP ratio, anyone? 150%. This, by the way, is data from the International Monetary Fund. There's a lot of different ways of looking at it. We chose the IMFs. Greece's debt is 150% of its GDP. 150% is just off the charts. There are very few examples of countries that have had debts that high for very long. It's incredible that Greece was allowed to drift up that high by investors. They clearly believed that the Germans, the French, and others would save Greece no matter how high the debts were. 
they may or may not prove right. Investors are expecting there's sort of a 50-50 chance at least, maybe even a 75% chance they'll default in the next few years. And frankly, I think that both of those are low. They're going to default. I mean, this is just a slow motion train wreck. Well, you've looked back hundreds of years. Is there anything that's comparable to the situation Greece is now? In one sense, what's happening to Greece is incredibly garden variety of the debt crisis they have. Really? This happens all the time? This happened. Well, we, we, were, we were able to write a book with hundreds of uh, sovereign defaults thanks to the fact that, yes, this happens all the time. And, you know, sometimes the country doesn't default, but a lot of times they do. Can you give me some ray of hope? What if they wanted to find some historical example of a country that had had debt to GDP of 150% and, uh, in their sort of situation and had managed to get out of it? Well, after the Napoleonic Wars and during <laughs> the 1800s, back to the Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> there was, uh, you know, England had times where their debt was uh, way over 200% of GDP and they pulled it together. We talked about how lenders can jack up the interest rates they charge you when you're in debt. And we know this again from credit cards. The bigger a risk you are, the higher a rate the lenders want to charge you. So the people who are loaning Greece money for 10 years, buying Greece's 10-year bonds, they're demanding 18% interest. That's like one of those really bad credit cards. And you don't get airline miles. Yeah, so 18% Greece, that's an indication that Greece is way over the line, has way too much debt, it's in real trouble. Our next stop is a country somewhere sort of in the middle, we don't know exactly, Nearby, Italy. Ah, Italy. It's beautiful this time of year. And, you know, Italy wasn't really on the list of countries that investors were worried about until just the last couple of weeks. And the fear about Italy is that it's much, much larger than Spain or Greece, and that if countries like Italy start to go under, the whole euro area could be in big, big trouble. So Italy's debt, here's the number, Italy's debt is 120% of its GDP. That is above the 90% point where historically countries begin to get into trouble. Italy is a little bit of a special case. The debt is not growing. Italy is sort of like a family that has maxed out a bunch of credit cards, but it is not adding to its debt. But with all the trouble in Greece and with the response of the European Union, which hasn't exactly had their act together, all of a sudden investors started to look at Italy and say, yeah, you know what? 120% of GDP, that is a pretty high debt. And investors got a little more nervous. And what do investors do when they're nervous? Again, they jack up the interest rates. What does history say about countries that are in situations like Italy right now? Well, I think they have a chance to make it, but they're probably going to need somebody to step in and stop the run. They're going to need the Germans to come in and say, you know, no matter what happens, uh, we will stand behind Italian government debt. Uh, we stand behind Italy and find some way to stop it. You need your rich neighbor in the mansion to come over and say, it's okay, we're going to take care of it. You need your rich neighbor, but compared to Greece, Greece is only 2% of the whole euro area GDP, and Italy is you know, at least six times larger. And so you live in a pretty big house, and you're spending quite a bit of money, not as much as your rich uncle, but maybe your rich uncle says, wait a second, that's, that's just too much. And so that, that's where Europe is right now, that they were able to handle the little countries they thought but Italy's something else. And uh, we're at a really critical historical crossroads where if Germany doesn't step up and guarantee Spain and Italy, they're not going to make it, that the investors are just going to say, you know, they're nice countries. I, I like a lot of things in Spain and Italy, but I'm going to put my money in Switzerland and Frankfurt. 
right now the yield on 10-year Italian bonds is 5.7%. That translation, that means people lending money to the Italian government for a 10-year time frame are saying, okay, I'll lend it to you, but you got to pay me 5.7% interest every year. That's what you might pay on a mortgage for your house, but it's pretty high for a country to pay on a lot of debt. Yeah, but it's not as high as Greece. Greece, you will remember, was 18%. So Greece, deep trouble. Italy, just on the cusp of having too much debt. That brings us to our final stop on our tour, the United States. And the math is pretty easy to do. The GDP of the United States is around $14 trillion. And the debt is also right around $14 trillion. So um, debt is a percentage of GDP, 100%. We are officially over the 90% threshold. I am concerned about the United States, not simply because of the number, the level it's at, but because of the trajectory that it doesn't seem to be on a stable trajectory, either economically or politically. And this isn't something I really think would uh, run into trouble in three or four years. I think it would take 10 or 15 years. But if we keep doing what we're doing, let there be no doubt that we would eventually see our interest rates shoot up and be forced to tighten our belts, perhaps quite precipitously. So basically, we're in a situation of having a bunch of fair amount of credit card debt, and we're still uh, using, we're getting out another credit card every year and continuing to. And we're taking it. out more credit cards as much as everyone will give them to us and running it up to the limit. And, you know, whenever there's an argument in the family about should we do more, then somebody says, well, people seem happy to give us more credit cards. So why are you complaining? Let's buy it. So what about that, though? There is something different about the United States from any of the other countries we talked about, which is that the United States is uh, it's special in the world. It is the most trusted economy by a lot, right? So it means that when everyone else is freaked out about where to put their money, they lend it to the United States. In the world financial system, there's no doubt about it, the United States is special. Uh, it's the biggest market. It's the most liquid market. And people have a lot of faith that no matter how much trouble we get into, we'll figure a way out. And there's a lot of faith in the dollar Countries denominate their trade in the dollar. Foreign central banks hold trillions of dollars of reserves. Uh, foreign wealth funds hold dollars. And ordinary people use dollars abroad in uh, many, many countries where they don't trust their own currencies. Probably more than half of all the dollars in circulation are abroad. And we get a lot of benefits from that. We get lower interest rates than we would otherwise. It doesn't just apply to the government. It applies to everything, our mortgages, credit cards. Because the dollar is the central currency, the most liquid market, we have a privileged position. And the good news is this probably would take decades to lose. The bad news is it's a very, very valuable thing to have, and you wouldn't want it to go away any faster than it needs to. And the way it would go away is just that eventually sort of the economies of Europe get back on their feet again and people feel like if they're worried about the dollar, they might actually shift money out into in substantial quantities into European bonds and therefore our interest rates would go higher, that there'd be some other reliable place people would feel okay putting their money. Exactly. The uh, people would feel that, uh, for example, if the euro doesn't fall apart and comes out of its current problems or it sheds a couple countries and comes out of its current problems, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and there would be diversification into the euro over time. And of course, the Chinese yuan is coming along, not now, but in 
30 or 40 years as they open their markets, as they become a more normal economy, they may begin to push us aside much the way the United States pushed Great Britain aside. It's very hard to talk about the timing of that. But there'll be, there will be other currencies, but right now the dollar is very, very clearly on top. So given that we are special, given that we're the reserve currency, what does history have to say? Do we get a little exception? We don't, 90% for us, it's higher. We could have a higher debt to GDP. We almost certainly can have, uh, you know, a higher debt than a country like Greece can, which has a history of defaulting all the time. But nevertheless, it's hard to know exactly where that ceiling is. And remember, part of the reason everybody trusts us is because when we run into trouble, let's say world interest rates go up, they believe we would figure out a way to tighten our belts. They believe we would figure out a way to handle it. And if we show weakness when tested like that, you can lose this confidence much quicker. Well, Professor, when you say you're worried about the trajectory of the United States in debt, I mean, what are you basing that on? Is that is that just your gut? You, we've already accepted that the United States is special. Well, it's not just based on my gut. I could use the Congressional Budget Office projections, even the White House projections. The total picture of debt is not particularly pretty. It's not Armageddon. Uh, I don't think we've reached the judgment day yet. But it's time to sort of start thinking about that trajectory. How do we stabilize things? And you sort of come to the crux of the problem that it's very easy to say we've got to stabilize our debt, but not today. Today we need to make it much bigger. And it's hard. Eventually, markets don't believe you. Eventually, you have to tighten a little bit at least to be credible. And if you're tested by markets and show you can't do that, then you're really in big trouble and we don't want to get painted into that corner. So despite all the fuss in Washington about the debt ceiling, Rogoff says our debt is not a problem in the near term or even in the medium term. How nervous are the markets about this? Not at all. In fact, the yield on 10-year U.S. Treasury bonds is stunningly low, 2.9%. Yeah, but Rogoff does warn us. And he says when you look back at history, interest rates have not been the best predictor of when a country will take a wrong turn. One day they're low. The next morning, no one trusts you anymore, and the rates just shoot up. Still, if they don't trust the United States, where are they going to put their money? Yeah, we should test that out. <laughs> we asked Rogoff about the whole debt ceiling debate in Washington. He says it's clear to him the right thing is the debt ceiling should just be raised without any conditions attached to it. But he says, on the other hand, the fact that lawmakers are talking seriously about dealing with long-term debt, that is really good. And a year ago, he never would have predicted that lawmakers would be tackling it today. So may your sirens call and sing all you want I will not hear what you have to say Cause I need freedom now And I need to know how to live my life as it's meant to be As always, let us know what you think What is your debt to GDP ratio and how close are you to the edge? Send us an email at planetmoney at npr.org. We have a list of countries with their debt-to-GDP ratios on our blog, npr.org slash money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Robert Smith. Thanks for listening. <laughs>